the blood of that land influences him and his perspective. But where I went to a, uh, an integrated school, my dad graduated from a legally segregated school in 19, like high school in 1966, 67, somewhere through there. Right. So his world is totally different from mine and yet not. Right. And he's trying to raise mm -hmm. me in a different world. And so like, mm -hmm. think like in, I, now I have perspective because I have a son of thinking about how my son's world is different from my world and how, you know, it helps me think about how my dad's world was and still is different from my world. Um, they're, very different spaces um but the repercussions of the history ripples through all of our lives you've tuned in to how it looks from here Life in the time of climate change. Here in the mashup of reality and uncertainty, life looks different to you than it does to me. The way race and gender, education and work, and everyday circumstances combine in any person's experience, well, it's different. For every person, how it looks matters. So we offer these interviews as a way of giving us all new ideas and inspiration for making our way forward together. Today, I'm speaking with poet Sean Hill. Sean is currently on faculty with the University of Montana and has been writing poetry since his college days in Houston. His poetry draws from his upbringing in Milledgeville, Georgia, the great-grandson of a man enslaved in Georgia. He also writes from experiences he's had living in Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska. Sean's poems often blur the lines between human society and the natural world, thereby giving way for powerful images of the brutality of racism to fall into deeper reality and wider comprehension. Listen in to hear Sean's reflections on poetry, social justice, nature, and climate solutions. Hello, Sean Hill. How great to have you with me on this podcast today. Thank you for for joining in. You, uh, a poet and currently a professor at the University of Montana. You know, the way I like to start these things, Sean, is to say, um, how does the world look to you <laughs> right now? Hello, and thank you for having me. Um, the world looks familiar to me right now in this way that I think um, it, it shouldn't, <laughs> right? Um, I'm a southerner, but I really like uh, northern places and spaces and cold places, and it's below, like, three below zero right now. And I'm like, yeah, it feels kind of familiar. Um, yeah, <laughs> I like it. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, we were minus nine this morning. Yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, again, I, I like that kind of thing. Um, just bundle up and go out into it and feel how the body's reacting. Um, 
Yeah. 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 Well, I just have, as I was saying just earlier, I've so enjoyed getting into your poetry. And I just have to say also that I love the fact, you mentioned you're a Southerner, that both of us found our way to Montana roundabout from Georgia. Yeah. That you were raised in Milledgeville, and I spent lots of my childhood at my grandparents in Ackworth, and then graduated from high school in Atlanta. And so in your collection, Blood Ties and Brown Water, you render stories from Georgia. And I'm curious about how your young, witnessing eyes brought you to writing what you saw there into those poems. <laughs> well... I, I appreciate the way you're thinking about that. Um, it, like my, I was always curious about the objects around me, the things that I, I, mean, I still am. Like, what is that thing? Um, you know, there's, I, I think it's Sesame Street or one of those programs on on PBS that I grew up with that would have this like, what is the sound? And then you kind of have to identify the sound before they show you what it is, or they show you how this thing was built. And it's always about sort of objects and how they are in the world. And, you know, so the objects of my, uh, the family, my generation, the generation before me, like those things fascinated me, but their lives didn't really um, you know, it's like, what is this Polaroid camera with the accordion thing? And like, you know, I was playing with like the old treadle uh, singer sewing machine and stuff, like those kinds of things. But like, I didn't really think about their lives um, until I had an assignment in high school to write um, about the 20th anniversary of desegregation of the schools in Milledgeville. And that was 1990, 91. And the schools that meant the schools had been desegregated in seventy seventy one, and I was born in seventy three, um, mm -hmm. and I was like, I didn't understand how close that history was to me. Yeah. Right. Um, and that made an impression on me, but I didn't have poetry at the time, and wasn't really thinking about, you know, making poems of that kind of stuff until college, when I found poetry. Um, as an, as an, a medium for my my expression um, and exploration, and then it wasn't until someone in one of my workshops I was taking um, pushed me to to try to write about instead of my relationship with my father and my sort of contentious relationship with my father to write about a a woman in my family, one of the women in my family, and I settled on my grandmother and. To do that, though, I had to interview her, and that's how I started thinking about her life. Because there's there's these sonnets and blood ties and brown liquor um, that are kind of based on that interview with her. Um, and then she became a collaborator because I didn't want to write all just about her, but I wanted to write about her family and then other people. But I, I, I her voice is throughout the book in certain ways, like some of the things she says ends up in other people's mouths. And then some of the things that I heard at church end up in people's mouths. Um, and so, yeah, that's sort of the, the process and that, but it was wanting to know more about her, um, in her life that led me to want to know more about her family, um, my dad's family, um, my dad, in a way that I hadn't really thought about before, um, and that just and that still kind of grows. Um, like my father was, you know, I found out a year or so ago that um, he was born 
on the property that he lives on now um, in a shack, um, hmm. you know, 75 years ago. And, you know, he was born, a midwife <laughs> was there. And, um, you know, the shack um, doesn't, isn't there anymore. A house was, the shack was torn down, a house was built. And then he went off to college for four years and came back and built, you know, a house next to my grandmother's house. Um, and I just sort of think about how he, his life, he like, he lived in that space for, he's lived there for like 70 of his 75 years. Mm. Um, so that's, that's how it started. Like, I, I just, I, I, I wanted to. Well, you know, I'm wondering about that, that, that in particular, um, with that kind of continuity, you know, we were talking also earlier about how you've lived in lots of different places. Um, and there is something about the land that jumps into you to help you know who you are. And it's um, the land itself is something you can always count on. And then there are the stories that unfold across the land that are things that are comfortable and uncomfortable. What about that land down there in Milledgeville? Is it part of what jumped into you to help you know who you are? Yeah, it is. Um, I, whenever I think about what I write out of, you know, it's this perspective that was shaped by that land, um, by the red clay, by being on the ground and, and you know, trying to catch frogs and, and um, anoles and all the little crawly things that I was, I was after when I was a kid, like that nature, those, those creatures, um, the, the flora around me, um, the mulberry tree in my childhood ends up in the childhood of one of the characters and, and blood ties and brown liquor. Um, the scuppernongs, um, or, or, or somewhere they're either in this book or they're going to be in this next book. I don't know, but like, you know, those are, you know, they're, they're around like all of these, these things that were there, um, were part of what's, what's grabbed my imagination and, and set my perspective. And then, then there's the, the blood of that land, the blood on that land, right? You know, that both of us know from different angles. Um, and, and in some ways, I don't know, that deep at the bottom, maybe there's a, a, a common knowing, but I don't know that I would venture that because it's so filtered through who we, how we were raised. Right, right, right. Well, so that was part of it too. When I was talking about my father, um, like the blood of that land influences him and his perspective, but you know, where... I was, I went to a, uh, an integrated school. My dad graduated from a legally segregated school in 19, like high school in 1966, 67, somewhere through there. Right. So his world is totally different from mine and yet not right. And he's trying to raise mm -hmm. me in a different world. And so like, mm -hmm. think like in, I, now I have perspective because I have a son of thinking about how my son's world is different from my world and how, you know, it helps me think about how my dad's world was and still is different from my world. Um, they're very different spaces. 
Um, but the repercussions of the history sort of ripples through all of our lives. Um, and there so, really is no getting away from it. No, no. You know, and so when I started this project with Blood Ties and Brown Liquor, I'm, I'm just uncovering more stuff. And like, I hadn't thought about like my grandmother's father. And that's what I'm finding out about him. It's like, oh, he was born in 1856. You know, he was born someone's property. Mm. My, my, my grandmother, a woman who had a big hand in raising me, one of they both did, but my, my dad's, my dad's grandfather was a slave. My, my great grandfather was my son's great, great grandfather was, was, was enslaved. He was property. I don't like using that word slave enslaved, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's, well, one of the things that strikes me is that you come right up against these, you, you, the natural world seems in all sorts of places, but and in both dangerous goods that collection and in uh, blood ties, the natural world seems to f- be a frequent anchor in your writing, um, like powerful images of the brutality of racism fall into deeper reality for me as a reader and wider comprehension with the way you blur the lines between human and natural society. Um, I, this one in. Um, Dangerous Goods, can I read you just a, a little excerpt yes, from it? It's, it's uh, the, the poem that doesn't have a title, but only the dedication after James yes. Wright. And it's, it reads, No one knows where Duane wants to reside, in, then out, on good behavior, then back inside, for the pettiest of crimes. Recently, he stole a measuring tape from Home Depot. Over a thousand miles from home, I phone every couple of days to get a measure of how things are going where I'm from. The weight of the lake, the osprey, sheds its drops and ripples around me. I don't know whether to watch the wing beats or to reach my hand to touch the ripples that come to me. I don't know whether I have wasted my life. You start this poem with the osprey, and then you go through so many people you know from back home. And with each of these people, there's some yellow ginkgo leaves. There's something. Talk about how that works for you, how the, the natural world and the human world blend for you as you're doing your work as a poet. The natural world is always there. It's a constant, right? Um, I've noticed it since, like, like I said, you know, since I was a kid crawling around, like getting, getting down on the ground to try to catch the, the lizards and the toads and the frogs and the such. Um, I sometimes blame my father for my, my noticing of birds, um, because he kept, uh, tropical fish aquariums around our house, <laughs> which I, I, you know, I, I don't, I like, I don't know, like he still does. I don't know who does that. Like, I don't go to people's houses really and, and see like tropical fish, but my dad still has his fish. He loves his fish. Um, and I think his love for, he has a, you know, a koi pond in the backyard even. Um, 
his love for these fish um, drew my my eye part like part of my growing up and having these like lighted aquariums with these beautiful fish swimming around um, through this fluid I think must have had some effect on the way I am always looking around the air at these things that are, are moving in through the fluid of air um, at birds that way right and so I feel like you know that looking looking to the non-human world is a way that I'm always grounding myself and noticing things is how I'm always grounding myself and um, as a poet, I get to sort of pull things from various places and put them together. And with dangerous, with danger, uh, blood ties and brown liquor, um, I wrote most of that book in Houston. And while I was in graduate school at Houston, Texas, at the University of Houston, I was noticing similarities in the natural world and differences um, with where I'd come from. And the similarities are what sort of helped me think about what I was leaving behind and then how to get those into the poems. That's how it works for me. And like, you know, there, there was, um, I was, I think the ginkgo leaf image that's earlier in that poem that you just read from, um, came from Houston or came from Oakland. I had, I spent some time in Oakland, California when I was a Stegner fellow at Stanford and I saw these ginkgo leaves and it reminded me of a ginkgo tree that I knew in Milledgeville. Um, there's, a, there's a ginkgo tree behind the, the old Carnegie Library in Milledgeville. And so I'm, I'm always sort of looking and then there was this question though at this poem, like what, what, what is this affording me? What am I doing with this uh. and how am I... Um, yeah, it's it's an odd poem for me because it is playing with the James Wright poem, which ends, you know, I wasted my life, and he's sort of sitting there and thinking about and and experiencing, um, you know, nature, the non-human, um, in this hammock at, at his, yeah. on the farm, and so I'm I'm like I'm I'm in a canoe thinking about this, you know, like what does it mean that all of these things are still happening. And I'm here looking, you know, thinking about the ginkgo, key, ginkgo trees and leaves and looking at um, this osprey. It's, I, I love watching osprey hunt. Like watching them hunt is just a beautiful thing. Um, and so it's the mystery that calls you really about both things, seems like, maybe. Like the mystery, that's what I feel when I read a lot of your work, is that, that there's this mysterious kind of, what did you say when we started out that it, the way it looks to you is familiar, but it feels like maybe it shouldn't be. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. And so there's, there's this, the ineffability, but the familiarity of the natural world allows, it seems, for you to dip into these deeper, more just like immediate, or they ought to be immediate human circumstances yeah and 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 make that somehow more available to consider and to um, make overt so that something might better be able to happen to address any harm that's happening exactly yeah I mean that's part of the question I guess in that poem is like what else can I do to sort of avert the harm that's happening um, you know one of the things I think about with and I think the poem itself is, is, is doing that. Like one of the things I think about with certain like nature poems, it's like, oh, I went out and I saw this thing and 
yay, I feel great. Or, I, I came close to the sublime. <laughs> I was like, but no, but it needs, it needs to do more. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think for me, like inside the poem, I'm wrestling with that. <laughs> and outside the poem, if I step back as the person who wrote the poem, I'm like, or as someone who didn't write the poem, even the, I feel if I look, I look at it, the fact that it brings into question that like, is it just the Osprey or is it like the fact that Dwayne is having problems and, you know, other people are, are getting caught up in the penal system and just being aware of that. I, I think that the poem is doing the work. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, that, that all things are happening and you're holding a container. Right. right. The poem holds a container. Right. Right. Which so, is always held. Right. You know, it's like that's what we're functioning in right this instant. Right. It's always held. So, yeah, the, the tension of the person who sort of lived the poem is present for me often when I look at that poem. But if I step back from it, I'm like, oh, the poem is actually doing what I want it to do, what it needs to do. No. I shouldn't say what I want it to do, mm. what it needs to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, there's a, a certain the other thing that I really notice is the relationality in your poems. And of course, this is the relationship with the natural world that we're, you know, have been looking at now. But you, you know, you brought up your grandmother. Um, the, the other thing that you do is that, well, like Silas, I love the Silas character and your grandmother, um, because like the natural world, they're agents of truths that are simple and difficult. And they're both living um, in ways through these words that to me are quite loving and quite matter-of-fact and really, really precise. Um, there's this one in, is it in Blood Ties? I think so, yeah. I, can I read this one to you? I love yes, please. reading this poems out loud. No one ever reads my poems to me. It's oh, there. really? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, um, you know, of course, just love to try to render it. So, liniments through the line of seasons. Lines reveal themselves, remind the face what it has done. Each day Silas revises the text, underscores, the repetition of church whispers, card game shouts, barbershop laughs, little boy pouts, stammers to stay alive by payday, frowns, rabbit hunt smiles, surprises, fishing thoughts, standing up tones, midnight moans, up country and down, home kisses, conversations, and supper silence over the years, just as each spring bare blind nestlings gape and caterpillars condense, clouding where plum branches, fork and pollen glides puddles and ribbons after rain and the dirt dauber shapes her nest from wet clay, deep red before it dries, this dirt sunsets distill. This is Mary Claire and how it looks from here. Stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break.
you do this. It's, I, I feel Silas, and then I feel the way again you weave with this, the natural world. Um, in ways that just for me open, open me up as a reader. You know, I get to relax. And I get to also, and this one doesn't carry the heavy stuff except for aging. <laughs> you know, and I, I'm curious then to, as I go and as I went on in that particular book to learn more about Silas. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, you, I, I really like that poem, which is an odd thing to say about your own poem. But I, I like hearing you read that poem. I really liked hearing you read that poem and thinking about, like, because it's, it's not a poem I, I come back to. Um, I hardly ever read it when I give readings. I don't think about it. And, and it, it is that sort of my thinking about the community. Um, and it, it takes me back there, too, like some of the things that are, are mentioned in the poem. Um, or the natural world and the human world that I, I grew up with um, and maybe didn't pay enough attention to some of it at the time, but in sort of coming to this book, trying to write this book, I, I needed to. Um, and thinking about being in church and thinking about, you know, the barbershop. Um, and there's there is some of the heaviness there too. I mean, it's a, a lot of this poem. I feel like is is kind of about getting at moments of joy um, and delight, but um, that that line stammers to stay alive by, or that 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 phrase there. Um, I, yeah. I I thought of that as um, the way in which people who are not in power sometimes have to perform to, to, to keep their livelihood in their lives. And sometimes you, you have to stammer. You have to, you know, to do the thing that, that's going to get you through a tough situation. Like, you have to, you have to cower. Because it, that's the path of least damage right 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 or or you stand up and maybe so you know it's sort of it's a stammers to stay alive by um you know and then later another you know the next line down two lines down it's like standing up tones like sometimes you mm -hmm. stand up and sort of weighing those things like how do how do we do and i i think ultimately you know, we need to stand up right um but sometimes it takes some stammering <laughs> right. to, to grow the muscle to be able to stand right, up, right. you suppose? I, 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 maybe, maybe. Again, nature's there because that's, that's the, you know, the noticing I do. Um, mm -hmm. You know, poetry is this attentive art. It's, it's an act of attentiveness. It's, it's, you know, an act of empathy. Um, and so the, those things were coming together in this poem and, you know, the pollen gills, puddles and ribbons after rain. That is something I saw in Milledgeville growing up, right? In the spring. I saw that too. And the dirt yeah, daubers. Yeah. And they're, they're in Houston. So like, uh, so I think one day I, I, I think I saw this thing that reminded me of Milledgeville and it's like this poem came out. You know, uh, or or uh, it worked its way into this poem. I can't remember how that exactly happened, but I, I know that that is, I remember experiencing like 
that's how I would describe that now that I have this language, this thing that I saw when I was younger and living in Milledgeville and in Georgia. And it, 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 com it comes in here. Um, and yeah. Yeah, the, the dirt daubers, ever fascinated by potter wasps. Yeah, yeah, they're just, they are amazing. And you know, it, it is, that's, uh, that's relationship. That's relationship of the daubers with each other and with yeah. the, the clay itself. So, you know, relationship is nature. So one thing that I do want to ask you is your take on the intersection, and I would say even the inner being. I don't know whether intersection or inner being is the best way to say it, of social justice and climate repair. So how does that relate oh. to your newer writing, for example, in the poem from Dangerous Goods Redux, where you place danger in both extraordinary and everyday circumstances, and the question is where about where danger meets good. It seems like this is right where we are with our climate and the state of human society. So the question is long, but social justice and climate repair. Um. They have to go together. They they they're sort of intertwined. Um, I think there's an interview <laughs> Jericho Brown did with Krista Tippett you a little bit ago, and he sort of said this thing that you know felt very right. And he's just like anybody who will mistreat a black or brown body. I'm totally like paraphrasing now. You know, um, will mistreat the the world. Um, regardless of what they say and how they might behave, like you know, so like we have to see that all of these things go together. I sometimes think about like this, we, we talk about climate change, and I think about the various ways of thinking about climate. Like there's meteorological climate, but there's also like political climate, and I think the political climate is affecting the meteorological climate, right? Um, the way in which people see other in their human community and in their non-human community is affecting the way they are creating policy and, and, and detrimentally so. Does that, make, does that make sense? Does that sort of get at the, the sure. question? If, if, if we have to sort of drill down and, and try to get to some generosity. I have a bias that poetry can help us see that we are wrestling, you know, and not not pretend like we're in integrity when when we have opportunities to become more in integrity <laughs> by seeing this wrestling match that's going on inside. Yeah, I hope so. That's what I'm I'm attempting <laughs> every every yeah. time. Um well, I'm curious, you know, in that, there's this dangerous and the good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, that, that I think it's somewhere in there I, I, I talk about, I, I think I say danger is nothing but potential. There's a, um, it mentions one of my, my colleagues telling my, my son to be careful in the parking lot because there's a potential for danger. Um, and I say, you know, danger is nothing but potential. It is about, like, the sort of... The possibility of harm, mm -hmm. and and like if we see the possibility of harm, what can we do to avoid that, and how do we avoid that for is for everybody, not just for ourselves. Um, 
you know, dangerous goods. It, it's uh, it's this phrase that I came across on a trip to Canada and has sort of been wor- worrying for um, for a little bit now. There's there's it, it's showing up on a there's another um, sort of lyric essay that's sort of a dangerous goods play. Um, where I'm thinking about the Berkeley Pit again. And the Berkeley Pit. Um, Tell our listeners, because some of our listeners won't be familiar with it. Yeah. Um, the Berkeley Pit uh, is a huge open pit copper mine um, that was uh, closed, um, I guess, in the 80s on Earth Day. When, I forget what year in the 80s, but um, it was shut down. And there were had been pumps that were used to... Um, keep the groundwater out of the mine and they just sort of shut those down too and so it starts the water starts seeping in and filling up and making um a, a toxic pond um in butte montana um that that's the berkeley pit um that will be there for yeah, as long as there's water yeah for as long as there's water mm-hmm. and if it keeps rising it could spill into the watershed and yeah it's just not not good <laughs> and um it is a place where occasionally birds the flocks of birds i think in the the one incident i, I talk about is this flock of um snow geese who uh that landed there and and died um um mm-hmm. because of the toxic water um landed and died overnight um a few hundred um yeah Yeah. and i think sort of the the next piece is kind of thinking about that and the fact that there are things microbes living in the berkeley pit um just these things we call extremophiles um, because they live in extreme environments. And I'm just sort of thinking about the way in which we are creating our own extreme environment and whether or not we'll be able to survive that, um, how we will live in that, in this next piece. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Sounds great. <laughs> I, Thank you. Keep, yeah. keep at it. We'll I, all I hope so. I hope we sort of understand that maybe we can't and we shouldn't and let's do something about it. Um, mm-hmm. you know, exactly. Yeah. So, um, from where you live, <laughs> from where you live, the, the eyes that you look out of and the heart that carries you through, what do you suggest to listeners as ways to navigate it all? <laughs> oh, I, for a while I've been like thinking, oh, generosity and grace, I don't, um, how to navigate it all. Um, I think in a way that's sustainable. <laughs> you have to find the way that makes it sustainable for you. Um, I, I, I navigate it by looking to the people around me and thinking about the community around me and the things that they're saying. So when that I'm, I feel like my energy is waning, um, I know there are people who are carrying on the conversation. Um, I, yeah, and also turning to the people around you to you know to see what they need and, and and hopefully get what you need from them um to move things forward in a way that um is, is gonna be sustaining and sustainable um one of the things 
I, I do. I, I was in an interview recently and someone asked the question, like, what, what, what are you most proud of? Talking about my poems, like which poem or something like that. And I was like, I'm really proud of the community building that I've done. Um, you know, I, I help organize a writer's conference up in northern Minnesota. And I feel like this sort of creating space for other people to do good work is is helping me sustain and hopefully making a sustainable future. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, these are the things. We, yeah. we work in, in the circles in which we find ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And those circles overlap. Yeah. So, yeah, making space. The, the various ways I've made space for people to, to do the thing that's going to hopefully make things better, change culture. Um, you know, I've edited things, um, series, online series and different things like that. Like, uh, I have this, I can, you can make a space. However that, you know, works in your life. You've made a space for your voice. You've then, that, you know, that then extends outwards because you say you tell some truths that are not gentle or easy to tell, right? Yeah, I, I, yes, <laughs> yes. I, I'm thinking I, of the postcards from Duluth, for example, a postcard yeah, from Duluth. Yeah, well, so again, I think part, like part, like I was saying, like I, I, I want to make space because space has been made for me. Someone else made space for me um, uh. to, to put that poem in the world. Um, and someone, made space in their life to, to write about that incident, um, this lynching that took place in Duluth, Minnesota in June 1920. Um, there, there's a book by Michael Fado um, about that incident. Um, that is a good book to, to look to if you want to sort of find out more about what happened um, with the three black men who were lynched. Um, in Duluth in 1920. Um, I feel like I should say their names. And I will. Um, yeah, Elias Clayton, Isaac McGee, and Elmer Jackson. Um, and, and so I, I think it's important, again, to sort of be able to, to do the things we need to do to try to make a sustainable culture, um, but also you know, part of that is is not just my your personal production, but making space for others to do that. Like, um, you know, Milkweed, you know, published this book. If not for Milkweed, this poem would just you know it would be on my desktop somewhere. You know, I think before they published the book with the poem in it. It was published in the Missouri Review. Um, and if it weren't for a Missouri Review, you know, it would just, it would have been, I, I, I think, a fulfilling exercise for me to write the poem. Um, it was something I sort of set myself to do. Um, but it would have just been that, you know, and that's fine. And if it weren't for your grandmother, right. you wouldn't have the the kind of things that she would say that make it possible for you to drop deeper yeah. into the story. 
because you knew that right, she knew. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, that poem you referenced is actually the second, my second go at writing a poem about the Duluth lynching. The, the first poem is earlier mm -hmm. in the book. It's titled June 1920. Um, and I took that poem to a workshop. And they were like, this is a good poem. It's a little interesting because it seems kind of removed. It's not very emotional. Um, and they were wondering sort of where the emotion was in the poem. And I was like, what I hear from you is that it's not a bad poem. It's just not the expected poem. So I will let that rest and, and I will try to write it again. Um, and it took me a few years um, thinking and sort of you know, ruminating, letting it gestate this idea of like, where's the rage in the poem? And I think at some point I just sort of realized that the emotion wasn't really, it wasn't rage, it was sorrow. And I think that that's what the poem, when I, when I went at it again, I was interested in the sorrow um, that this event um, evokes in me. And then um, my grandmother came, came into the poem and I think ultimately there might, there is some rage there, but that's not like for me, the predominant emotion that I was trying to write from. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that was giving myself space you know, to, to sort of think about it. But then I think it, it might be a more powerful poem than the first poem I started with, you know? Um, and well, in the way the poem ends with your grandmother's word, hush, which doesn't mean, which I heard a lot growing up too, and it doesn't necessarily mean uh, be quiet, stop yeah. talking. It can. Hush up yeah. is more be yeah. quiet, hush up. Um, but the hush is more, it's, it's sort of like a gentle yeah. there, there. You know, you have this sensibility yeah. now. We have this sensibility. It is a sadness. And our work through sustainability is to see to it in, in any ways that we can that these kinds of injustices do not yeah. occur again. So right. what do we do? And that's what that hush Yeah, is yeah. And I mean, this is, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> and I, I hope it, you know, it does some work in the world. Um, yeah. Well, certainly it does. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for spending this time, Sean. It's wonderful to, to talk with you again. Thank you for having me. You can read Sean's poetry by visiting his website at seanhillpoetry.com. Pick up one of his books, Blood Ties and Brown Liquor, published by University of Georgia Press, or Dangerous Goods, published by Milkweed Editions. Check our show notes for complete bibliographic information on several of the resources Sean mentioned, along with a link to his newer poem entitled From Dangerous Goods Redux. And now before we go, a quick pitch for our podcast. If you like what you're hearing on How It Looks From Here, make sure to subscribe. Let's get these perspectives out there. Tell your friends and family. Share a link right now with someone you know would enjoy learning how it looks from another viewpoint. You can 
Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. How It Looks From Here is an educational collaboration between Full Ecology and the System Zoo. How It Looks From Here was produced by me, Mary Claire, editing by Gary Ferguson, music by Gary Ferguson and Cedar Mathers Wynn. Find us on Instagram at Full Ecology and at www.fullecology.com. Keep listening and be in touch.